Cuisine Bites with Kelly Brett. Everything you'll ever need to know about food. Hello and welcome to another episode of Cuisine Bites where we take you behind the pages of our beautiful cuisine magazine. This episode, although called The Melting Pot, sprung from the creation of our Spring Asian issue. I'm really proud of this particular issue of cuisine. It has many Asian flavoured layers to it that enhance the fantastic recipes developed by our team of food writers and chefs, and I hope will open up a bigger conversation around the melting pot that is our New Zealand food story. How we talk about food and culture really matters. Is it time to stop using the E word? Why are the foods of some nationalities commonly described as ethnic, but not others? Is the yearly list of cheap eats regularly delivered by some, well, actually nearly all food publications, becoming problematic? In the comments section of a recent Best Cheap Eats in Your City list, I found a comment saying, immigration only enriches our choice of cheap eats. I'm sure the person commenting didn't mean anything by it. But is it my imagination or do we have a general perception that Asian food should be cheap? Absolutely. I run a restaurant in New York and London and when we started there um, it it was a difficult thing to convince people that how can I pay $100 for a curry? Is New Zealand able to compete in the world of high-end Asian cuisine? I think what we're producing here, what we're cooking here, is world class, but we're cooking off a limited profile of ingredients, and I think um, you know it's a lot less than what's available in, in many, many other countries. But then there again, you know, we also have somebody like Chef Anthony Louis from Flower Drum Restaurant. He makes the most beautiful, beautiful dim sum, you know, that you could find possibly under the sun. That last voice was the voice of Tony Tan, a visiting international food writer who, while talking to me about Auckland food, asked the question, where is your flower drum? Now that got me thinking. Flower Drum is a Melbourne restaurant that serves fine dining Cantonese cuisine and combines exceptional food, fine wine and impeccable service. Delivers a unique dining experience every time. We do have a few very fine examples of Asian cuisine at the high end, but very few. Why is that? New Zealand does casual very, very well. But is there a customer perception that Asian cuisine is not worthy of anything more than a fast, affordable option? Or is it just that we don't have the foot traffic and the access to ingredients to take our Asian cuisine to the next level? Do we tend to tighten our belts when it comes to Asian food in general? Or is it that as a culture, we just don't value the high-end experience? I'm not sure that we'll be able to answer those questions definitively for you in this episode, but let's at least start the conversation. It's a long one, so buckle up. Cuisine Bites with Kelly Brett for the love of food. In the midst of curating and developing content for our Asian issue, I headed to Singapore to take a look at their incredibly competitive high-end restaurant offerings. And the first chef I met was David Myers at Adrift, a restaurant located in the fabulous Marina Bay Sands Hotel that combines the freshest Asian ingredients with a taste of California. I was lucky enough to have David personally deliver my kampachi sashimi dressed with grapefruit and soft tofu cream. That's the sashimi, not David. And after lunch, we grabbed a Negroni and settled in. Uh, 
so everything I have right now is uh, is all international. Again, I'm I'm super uh, excited and focused on being um, around the globe. So uh, I'm in Tokyo. I have an Adrift, our second Adrift. Uh, we launched in Tokyo last November. Uh, we have a few restaurants in Tokyo. As a matter of fact, we have Saltwater, which is our Italian concept. Uh, we have you know focused on all local ingredients for that. We have 72 Degrees, which is our uh, really cool cafe concept from California. Uh, we have another Saltwater, which is also in Nagoya. Um, we're in Dubai. We have uh, three places there. We have a really cool bar called Poppy. It's a speakeasy, incredible cocktail. Sam Ross did it out of New York City from Attaboy. Uh, we have a restaurant called Blue Blanc, which is um, basically it's a, it's a southern French restaurant where everything is cooked over the live fire. So it's all about the grill. It's the heartbeat of the kitchen. In fact, if I were to have a home in the south of France, which I wish I had, this would be it. This is how it would feel. This is how I would cook. That's how the setup is. And then Basta is our Italian restaurant. Um, and it's kind of the best of Rome meets Naples meets um, Florence, you know, my three favorite places in Italy. And then, of course, we have a drift here in Singapore. When you open a restaurant like this, in a place like this, how do you go about it and how much attention do you pay to the local food culture and the way people are? How much do you think about who that customer is going to be? Well, when you are launching in a, in a foreign country or a place that you, you, know, you don't have history, um, one, you know, I have to immerse myself in it. I have to, first of all, love it. And, and be excited to be here, otherwise I wouldn't open. Um, I actually want to go to the places that I open the restaurants. Um, and I need to spend a lot of time, you know, uh, eating out, seeing the other restaurants that are out there, meeting the chefs, seeing what type of products that we're able to get to really assess if, you know, what type of food we can do and how we can do it. Um, you know, Singapore is an easy place because it's, it's such a cosmopolitan hub um, and, you know, we're able to get anything, globally, mm -hmm. anything. Um, and so from that standpoint, we knew that we needed to create something that was really worthy of international recognition, worthy of people who wanted to come in from abroad, whether it was they're flying in from Sydney, flying in from London, Tokyo, and there would be something that would be compelling for them to come in and dine and, and experience it. And so the style of cuisine that, that we've done at Adrift, um, you know, really is, it's, it's what I love to cook, it's what I love to eat. Uh, it has an Asian edge, which I think, you know, um, really works well in Singapore, uh, but it has a real California heartbeat still, which is is really about the ingredients, the simplicity of it, um, and we, we never lose sight of that. No matter what country we're in, we have to source out and find the best mm -hmm. of everything. Tell me about a dish that's on the menu at the moment that you, you really love. I mean, I know they're all your babies, but yeah. give me one that really stands out that's got you thinking at the moment. They are. Well, I, t I tell you, I just had last evening um, this, this new clam dish that we're doing where we're literally just grilling it over the wood fire. And just to see these, these beautiful clams pop open and you can hear the sizzle and it comes out. We, we created a, a little ponzu uh, that goes with it, um, you know, fresh yuzu, uh, a little sake, mirin, and soy. And it's just, it's so simple and clean and beautiful. I just, I love a dish like that where it's the least amount of ingredients, yet it has um, the, the ability to just kind of knock your socks off, you know? Mm. That's a dish I love right now. And what do you think about um, the S word at the moment? The old sustainability word gets thrown around by so many restaurateurs and chefs, yeah. but uh, what's your approach? Well, I think we're all trying to do it better. I think we, we have no choice, first of all. And um, you know, I think in whatever capacity we can you know, up our game on that side, um, we, we do it. Um, the challenge always is, you know, 
we're, we're a small island. <laughs> we have to get a lot of ingredients flown in. Um, we, we, we don't really have a lot that is growing in Singapore itself. So that's, that's a bit of a challenge for us. But we do try to look at you know, um, every avenue that we can to, to lessen our footprint, our impact on it. Um, we there's so much information out there. There is mm. so much, and and, agendas. It, it, and there's so many agendas. And you know what? We're trying to just keep it really simple. We want to buy the best ingredients. We try to get our stuff, um, you know, from local farmers, from local fishermen. Um, and by local, I'm including like Indonesia, you know, all of that. That's that's local for us. Mm. Um, and we're trying to create these relationships. And we know that the way that these people either raise, fish, hunt grow um, their stuff is is done in the most thoughtful manner because they're passionate they're they're committed to what they're doing and they don't work with everybody and so I think our best move actually has been to connect and partner up and create these relations where we're able to um, feel confident with what we're getting and um, you know the product it's all about great product at the end of the day if something is sustainable but it's not good we're not going to have it. Mm. Um, we're really excited about our, our next up-and-coming restaurant for a drift. It's going to be in India, actually, in Delhi. And I'm really, really thrilled to get into the market and to uh, experience that. The food in India is out of control anyway. It's beautiful, mm. um, and, and we learn a lot from it. And so you must be thinking about how this menu would look there. What would be different? Yeah, so, well, we're going to go with a bit more of a Japanese edge in, in India. Um, we found, so you asked me earlier about how do we understand a market? How do we know what works for the guests in, in the communities and all that? And, you know, what I've seen is is that they love Japanese food. They love the vibrancy and the lightness of it. Um, and, and I love it, too. So it's a, it's a really good fit for us to bring sort of that adrift vibe to Japanese cuisine so you know having places in Tokyo having spent a lot of time there we're going to be bringing that in but it will be a drift it will have its own little twist on on Japanese it will not be a classic take on this or that it's going to be our version Cuisine Bites with Kelly Brett if you'd like to follow David's adventures, you can find him on Instagram at Gypsy Chef. Meanwhile, downstairs on the magnificent waterfront at the Marina Bay Sands, Singapore's pioneer celebrity chef Justin Quick proudly delivers a Singaporean gourmet experience in a country that is traditionally known for its street food and hawker experiences. How does he pull that off? Here, I do Singapore thing that I like and thing that people like. Yes. like even, even a simple dish, like a lamb satay. Lamb satay on the street, you can get it, yeah, maybe a dollar fifty or what, too. But I'm particular, I use like New Zealand lamb. I marinate, I have my own marinade sauce. After that, I charcoal grill. And we homemade our own peanut sauce. So when you taste, you know, yeah. So I'm interested to hear you say about the perception of value of, um, of Singaporean food. It's when you look, because everybody talks about the hawkers and the, the street food. So how do you change the mentality with that price point? Today, Asian people are more affluent. Seriously, if you talk about China now, mm. apparently there's 300 million meter class. 300 million. Singapore is barely 4 million. Mm. And then you see Cambodia, Vietnam are all booming, all growing. The, the country is moving. And then not talk of Thailand, like mature city like uh, Tokyo, I mean Japan, Korea, you know. So Asians are getting richer and richer and then they want the best of life. And Asians by, by so-called by so-called by nature, when they do well, they want to dress well, they want to eat well. So don't get me wrong, good comfort food but upgraded. 
So I upgrade everything from a normal so-called uh, beef that we saw wherever. Now we use quality, we even use Japanese Wagyu beef. So it's about premium ingredients. Absolutely. Not only that, also matter of doing simple, but ingredient in terms of spices, I make it simple. And I cook more, with more detail. Where of course, uh, you know that uh, street food, walk fry, we just do this. But we look into the stock that we're having, the noodle we're having, even the chicken, the meat, the seafood, and seasoning and spices. When we do it, we're more gentle because I use my French so-called uh, knowledge to impart into Singapore cuisine, make it more fine. Season by hand, not by spoon, so that you get more sensitive, you know, yeah. so more refined. And what do the local Singaporeans think of this food? There's a 50-50. <laughs> Those people who appreciate good things in life, they appreciate your, your, your so-called professionalism, they buy it. Those who are so used to Hawker Centre every day, they say, oh, not worth it. Because uh, oh, Hawker Centre is better than you, but I cannot blame. Because some Hawker Centre, frankly, is so cheap, it's good, don't get me wrong, but then Chances they use a lot of MSG, the quality of product is not as, as premium. Yeah. If you if you know it, when you eat it, wow, it's totally different, you know. But frankly, we all cannot please everyone. We, we try. But in general, people love it. Say, wow, it's like Hokkien meat is so popular here. And our fish, we use Mediterranean fish, New Zealand fish. I use, I use Japanese fish. Once in a while, I use local fish if I can sell some good fish. Yeah. So Chef, when you're talking about premium ingredients, not many of the ingredients are available here in Singapore. You have to bring them in? I do, in fact, around the world. Australia, New Zealand, Japan, France, America, we bring in. And a lot of products are imported. Of course, Singapore is, is, a, is, a, is a city. There's no farming, very little farming. The, the most they do are uh, hydroponic uh, micro, uh, micro herbs. That's all. And some vegetable, you know, which I feel that it's okay, but I feel that Australia, New Zealand, and Europe got such beautiful product, you know. Yeah. Japan, I got three shipments a, a week. France, two shipments, Monday and Thursday. New Zealand, same thing, either one or two shipments a week. Uh, we fly in, we fly in um, a so-called uh, coral cod uh, power, and also, what is that, the um, oysters, yeah. And we buy most, uh, coral cod we sell a lot, because I like the skill, when I, I so-called like fry them, the skill is crispy and serve with the superior soy sauce. So for me, I'm quite uh, so-called uh, neutral. I just want to I, I, I say I can't please everyone. Because sometimes people are upset because, oh, they pay a bit more, they feel that, oh, I have one big portion. I say, no, we are here featuring about quality, not quantity. Also right now, uh, the younger generation chef, they are well-traveled. They also are more, as I say, affluent, can spend more. So when they cook, they use better product. You see, as I say, the world is getting smaller. Even I'm from uh, so-called, uh, South, my mother come from South China, Chiu Chao. I also do the cuisine, but I say, I say those days, you don't have any so-called uh, DHL or uh, logistic company. That's why you only use whatever is five kilometers, 10 kilometers within your own uh, area. But today you can fly everything around the world. It's proven, you got a very good technique, but I'm using the best fish from here. If I'm going to fly the fish from China, I might as well find the fish from New Zealand or, or Japan or no, someone that can do logistics well. So today, people are different. Taste must be there. But quality product, you improve because 30 years ago, you're different. You, you go simple. But now, you're better off. I say, I want a better product. Well, I left Singapore a torn woman. On the one hand, the country seemed to deliver exceptional dining experiences from casual street food to the ultimate in fine dining. 
While there, I was lucky enough to eat at Odette, now a three Michelin star restaurant and currently holding the prestigious title of Asia's best restaurant. It's set within Singapore's National Gallery and the food was absolutely exquisite. But I left Singapore with one overarching question around that premium product and produce that they were all so passionate about. As a country that imports over 80% of the food on its dinner tables, they have access to the world's premium ingredients and have some of the lowest tariffs on agricultural imports, which of course helps to reduce their overall cost of importing food. But what about the food miles? It's a very different picture back in New Zealand, as Chris Will, executive chef at Masu Auckland, explains. I think um, it's a, there's certain things that we're looking for that would be easily accessible from Australia or from the UK. Uh, I know myself and all chefs struggle that once have worked in London and Dubai and so on, where it's just not that simple. You can't just pick up the phone and get you know, anything you want. But in the same regard, it also teaches you to be a bit more restricted and a bit more... Uh, focused on what you're actually trying to develop so you don't have the luxury of just phoning up and getting fresh kina if you need it today you have to work with the season you have to change seasonality you have to just you know keep evolving uh, as you go does the average customer get the value in a high-end asian restaurant i think so uh, i think it's pretty clear if you if when you look at quality from especially from a fresh produce perspective you know if you compare uh, just naturally wild line caught fish compared to uh, sashimi grade fish that we get from leaf fish that's been uh, you know hand-picked every single day for Masu for instance or you get guys like Better Fishing that are uh, sustainably sourced down in the, uh, by Casey. I think there's a definite difference between run-of-the-mall produce that uh, New Zealand produces and then there's world-class produce that New Zealand produces and I think I think that's one strength that New Zealand has and there's definitely a difference between what you could get just out of a packet from let's say you know, somewhere in Asia versus what you could actually make in, in uh, the restaurant. I think Masu's food sits within that confusing world of authentic but not authentic. I asked chef Nick Watt to define his menu. Uh, Masu's food is, is contemporary Japanese. So you come to, to Masu, uh, you leave most definitely having a Japanese experience. We use traditional techniques and methods, but we just enhance the flavour profile. Mm. And that's very much that theme of... Um, the Western palate boosting the, the flavours a little bit and moving away from that more subtle Japanese traditional yeah. style. Yeah, traditionally Japanese food is super subtle. And I'll, an example, we've got kamameshi here, which is a, a Japanese style risotto. So our kamameshi, uh, the, the process, the stock, everything is, is fully traditional. The last third of the section we completely change. So traditionally you would cook the rice, steam the rice with the same stock that we use, with the same rice that we use. Traditionally, the third step, you'd put a, a fillet of fish on it with some ginger and just steam it. So you have this beautiful rice, it's, and the fish is steamed, and the ginger. But that's, I think, to a Western palate, almost a little bit dry and, and, and soft. So we do, instead of the, the, on the third stage, we'll make a slurry with crab and the stock and add lemon and chilli and ginger and put it on. So when you stir it, and we sneak in a little bit of butter, uh, miso butter, but when you stir it, it becomes a little bit more of a risotto kind of mm. texture. So the dish in itself is, is quintessentially traditional Japanese, but the flavour profile that the guests receive is just enhanced. Mm. And so you recently had um, a great... Uh, collab here when Tony Tan came in and um, did some cooking for you in, in the Masu kitchen. How do you think someone like that, um, coming over from Australia with access to the restaurants that he's got there, would find the Auckland Asian food scene? I think somebody coming um, almost from anywhere in the world um, to the Auckland Asian food scene 
would struggle a little bit by ingredients. Um, we don't have a Chinatown full stop, um, you know, right from the start. So what ingredients we have are beautiful, super fresh, and one of the beauties of I find in New Zealand, particularly uh, coming back from being overseas, is New Zealand is truly uh, seasonal. You know, when strawberries mm. are out of season, they're out. Mm. Whereas many places in the world, when strawberries are out of season, you just move to Israel or South America or, you know, back to where they're, you know, locally from. So somebody come into the Asian food scene, I think what we're producing here, what we're cooking here, um, is world class, but we're cooking off a limited profile of ingredients. And I think, um, you know, it's a lot less than what's available in, in many, many other countries. So is New Zealand behind the eight ball when it comes to availability of product? Some smart chefs that have considerable financial support behind them are working with growers to cultivate produce and ingredients that are not readily available, and the gap seems to be lessening every year. But it was interesting to hear the approach of Chef Paul Greening while he was here. He was conducting a Tamana lamb workshop with a group of talented Christchurch chefs. Paul's in New Zealand are currently at the helm of a raft of international restaurants, including London's Aqua Kyoto. In Aqua Kyoto, is I did some research with uh, is growing uh, Japanese produce in the actual kitchen. So I had a look at a like a, a growing cabinets with uh, blue and red LEDs in Germany. And I thought it wasn't really what we were looking at because they were starting the plant from like a, I suppose like a nursery stage, like a plug. So I managed to find out a, a company in the UK that actually the, the, where they were based was actually was a research facility. So it was really amazing. And uh, working in conjunction with them, we put a whole farm into Aqua Kyoto and we decided that we wouldn't use any soil. So we're using recyclable coconut husk as the soil. Um, And we're growing products from Kyoto, from Osaka, seeds that we get from directly from Japan. And we've been growing things like turnips, uh, aubergines, shishito, wasabina and currently we did been doing some research on sea vegetables so we've been growing our own sea vegetables in the actual kitchen itself so uh, it's been hugely successful and uh, since I've been in Aqua we've kind of done a lot of research with uh, making our own soba noodles, udon, tofu Um, so we kind of really want to get back to the situation of zero carbon print organic obviously we've been involved with lacto fermentation and I'm pretty much at the forefront of Japanese fermentations in London so uh, I do a lot of work with the Nordic Test Kitchen which is uh, a subsidiary of Noma so we've been working with conjunction with them and obviously it was just a natural situation for me I had a lot of background and dealing with the uh, bacteria and, and um, microbes and things like that so it was very very easy just to jump back into it and uh, in Japanese cooking it just deals with so much kind of natural healthy lactobacillus bacteria which is really good for your gut and uh, in Japan they also do nuka asazuke which is using the husk of the rice which they use after they mill the sushi rice and they uh, make like a lactobacillus kind of uh, mash which is called nuka doko and uh, then you make your nikozuke, which are your, your pickles, basically. Mm. So, Obviously, all of this has stemmed from that passion for microbiology, but where did the Japanese 
come in? Was it because you went into Aqua Kyoto and then started looking for opportunities? Funny you say this. So my, my dad's a marine biologist. He worked in between Japan and New Zealand. But uh, actually, back in 1995, a few years ago, um, I worked at Kermedic with a guy called Takashi. And obviously half the restaurant, obviously in, in Auckland, uh, it was Japanese. And a wet and a dry tatami room at the time. And it was really good to go back into that. And obviously I moved away from Japanese and I moved more into kind of Michelin-style restaurants. But to be honest with you, the whole, the, the whole kind of environment of nature and even in, in French food these days and, and in Spain with my friend... Uh, Albert Adria from Enigma Concept, you know, the, everyone's doing, using Japanese produce um, and Japanese kind of methods. And I believe it's just like, you know, it's become pretty much uh, a melting pot of globalization where we're, we're utilizing uh, different products in different cuisines. And so the end result, root to leaf cooking, they say on your website, um, GMO-free, organic, sustainable, and reducing the carbon footprint, and that's incredibly impressive. But if I was coming to Ako Kyoto next week, what would be the one dish that I couldn't miss? I believe it's the Timana lamb. So actually this lamb dish I'm doing is uh, everyone who's had this, this lamb is just like knocked back by the, the, the combination of the flavours and everything for it. And by far, I think it's just uh, an incredible marinade that we came up with. To give it understanding, I mean, people call it, I know it's been referred to as the Wagyu of lamb, but really the, it's a really interesting product because the fat resembles Miyazaki beef, Japanese beef, and it's in that same kind of level of like uh, Iberico pork has that same kind of high premium waxy style fat. So really, it just has amazing flavor and that's why we use it but uh, I think it's that I would say and of course this amazing toefish dish we've got on the moment which we make the sauce at the table with with all the ingredients on the dish we grow in the kitchen so I'd say those two dishes are impressive where is the um, the current Asian food scene in London at the moment I know that's a very broad um, thing to ask but where is it at at the moment well, obviously, you know, Asian food has become really popular and, um, and Japanese especially. And, and, you know, if you had to really look at Japanese food in, in, in London, it really, I would say it stems from the U.S. more than Japan because Japan is very, is very uh, traditional. It's a bit like Italy. There's a lot of traditionalism and there's a few people breaking out into modernism, basically. When I look at the food from what we're doing, we're basically, just like Raina Baker Azuma, they're creating stronger flavours that will suit the kind of European palate, um, where Japanese food is very, very light, and some people would probably refer to it as bland. But um, it's all about seasonality and getting the best produce. And, uh, you know, Gordon Ramsay's opening up Lucky Cat recently, and uh, he's now jumping, trying to jump on the bandwagon of, a, of the product. But to be honest with you, the main focus of the Japanese and Asian restaurants in London are probably the most profitable restaurants in London today. I mean, Novikov is making 47 million. We make a, a good amount of money close to that ourselves. And the demand and the uh, for Asian chefs and especially is and the price point that. 
people in this kind of career can earn is phenomenal compared to say European food it's just because it's now really surpassed um, Italian food as the most eaten food globally. Cuisine Bites. Chef Paul Greening works across an impressive portfolio of international restaurants and says a chef producing quality Asian cuisine can pick up the big bucks on the international circuit. But here in New Zealand, there still seems to be the question of how to get the customer to pay for a more premium offering. Chef Jezebel Granada co-owns Filipino restaurant Nanam in Takapuna. I asked Jess if she's concerned about price point. I am probably the right person to ask for that because I've been to all the levels for being on a small market into bringing it to like a local restaurant in Royal Oak and now you're in Takapuna, which is one of the, you know, um, area where they, obviously the price point is quite high. Yes. And um, yes, in the sense that, um, yes, in the sense that it's a little bit undervalued because some when we started, people saw Nanam as like an Asian restaurant. They would come and say, oh, you know, I've, do you have vegetarian options here? Or do you have something vegan? Because my daughter's vegan. I still remember that lady. And, and, she, and her eyes glows when I say we actually definitely have even a separate menu for your daughter. And she said, wow, that's amazing. Because normally when you go out in an Asian restaurant, there's nothing to cater for mm. us. And I think that's also the goal of every restaurant is to also see uh, see through it that even if this is the food that you wanted to give to people, you have to put an effort to also show them that this is worth it, you mm. know, from looking after obviously the service, not just the service, but you know, the, the food quality and how you present it to the people. And that's where they appreciate when they come in here, I just want to share to everybody that they have no idea what Filipino food is. Mm. They'll be sitting in here and be like, oh, I don't know what to have today. So Filipino food, is it close to Malaysian? Is it close to Vietnamese, to like Thai? And we say, you know, you'll be surprised to whatever you're going to taste today. So we'll present it to you and you let me know. And, and, you know, they understand that the mix of Asian, Spanish and American and all the culture that we have on a table presented nicely and with an effort, with an effort to explain, because I think that's 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 where the edge comes from to us when we tell people what the food is all about. And then they never thought of the price point anymore to be expensive, mm. because we put that warm effort to make sure they don't just eat and eat and sit down. Um, and that's I think the thing that I would um, say to a lot of people who think that you know Asian food is supposed to be cheap, but I think. It's just supposed to be showcased in another level where people understand that you're entering a different culture with a different background and this is how we'll present to you and people appreciate it and people never think of the price point mm. anymore. Mm. Yeah. So is it perhaps that thing of it becomes more than just food, then it's an experience? Yeah, so I think it's people wants to belong to a place. I think that's what ex- experience is all about. It's about feeling that belonging that when you enter you 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 enter a new experience but without being left out Mm. that's our goal at nanam to make sure that the people feel that they were belonged even though they come in and they didn't know what they're gonna have Mm. because most of the people come in have no idea what filipino food is what's your opinion of the asian food scene in general in auckland what the the gap is quite huge at the moment um, especially with New Zealand, you know, there's always just fine dining and then Asian food. 
And I've felt that for five years. But you know what? That has been my goal to show people that, you know, you can break on that barriers. And as a young chef, I make sure that I did everything I could to show people that we are definitely worth it um, and that we are, we are worth exploring. And that comes in obviously with, you know, the notes of price points and service and everything. And I've, I've seen a lot of changes. I mean, in, in Takapuna, obviously, we have more of the uh, non-Asian people coming into our restaurant. 80% of them um, uh, are non-Filipinos. Uh, and that's a big appreciation for what we do. I have people that comes in here three times a week. And I think that's what matters the most. And that's when I know that people are happy and they're coming back for something just more than just food. Yeah, and that makes all the difference. And I think we're climbing up there. And I think we're, we're bringing that diversity, um, that change in, in that culture up there to the level people are, you know, kind of like, wow, I didn't expect it to be that way, you know. And, and I always get that comment on the table. I didn't expect it to be that way. And that, that means we've made a change. Yeah. So if I was coming in tonight for dinner, mm-hmm. what would I absolutely not miss that you'd want me to eat? I think it will be the takapau. The takapau buns is where we, like what I said, all that stages that that little bun have been through. It's been to the market, it's been to Royal Oak, and it's been to the takapuna, and it's been to, you know, catering, um, people's houses. Um, Takapau is a beetroot bao that we do here, so it's hand-rolled, handmade, um, steam buns, um, and we serve it with a, a sticky pulled pork, we call it humba, with that is braised in ginger and a little bit of sweet soy, um, and you all have the uh, um, condiments on the side, like pickles and uh, peanuts and also some crispy shallots, and I think why the people shouldn't miss it is it's a simple food that represents Filipino food, so it's a Filipino Chinese food to us. And um, for us to be making it until now, I am very um, overwhelmed because people still look for it where wherever I take it. You know, I take it to the market to this dining scene in Takapuna, and people still it's still their favorite. So I think people should have it when they come to Nanam. Yeah. Terrific restaurants like Nanam are definitely on the radar of Auckland Asian food enthusiasts but off the radar for many who aren't in the know. I've been following an Auckland Facebook group called Lazy Susan to pick up on some of those off-the-radar dining experiences. Anthony Suvalko is one of the group's administrators and a keen advocate for the food scene in Auckland. Well, Lazy Susan really was a Facebook group and it basically uh, something myself and Anna have chatted about for a while in regards to how can we get kind of a broader, larger voice about the the local suburban restaurants, the ethnic eateries, um, places that we tend to frequent on a weekly basis. And we thought they lacked a little bit of coverage. It's, it's a huge market, Kelly, so we thought, let's get this kind of idea, let's see if we can all bring them together mm. under a social platform. And let's see if we can get them not just together as a group, but also contributing. Um as, as you know, Auckland's an ethnic city, it's pretty diverse, and um, it's wonderful to hear, hear these voices from people who have either made Auckland their home from Vietnam or from Thailand or from from China, 
and they've got a, a, a fabulous amount of knowledge that they can impart and teach us. And I thought, let's try to get a group together and let's see if we can learn from them. That's kind of, you know, really where how it was founded. And it's just, it's growing well and it continues to grow well. And um, we think we've hit that kind of critical mass now. We were getting great input from obviously the CBD, the shore. We could we could do with a bit more from the east and south, Um but you know, it, we're only. St- I think we're still relatively new. Uh, but I tell you, I've, 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 you get some gems from that group. You do that um, that I didn't even realise existed pretty close to where I live, which is um, I'm in Mount Eden, so pretty central. Um, and I thought I had my finger on the pulse quite well. But um, these places pop up, and um, and, and the uh, and the members are onto it pretty quickly. Mm. So that, that was kind of the reasoning behind it. We felt like um, there was a good conversation to have on the growing diversity of our, of, our, of the Auckland's food culture, and and we thought that this is probably the best vehicle to do it. So today we're talking about the Asian food scene. Is it fair to say that that cheap eats are fairly like really well covered? The middle road is um, possibly quite good as well, but not so much the high end. What what do you think? Yeah, and I, I, look, I just wonder if that's a transition. I wonder if that's just you know we've, we've established the cheaper end of the market very mm. well, and we've got now the rise of um, fusion um, food in that Asian sector, and that tends to hit the middle market. So that's been the next step. So look, it'd be interesting over the next um, you know 12, 24 months um, if it starts to actually make its presence felt in the in the top end of the market. I'm not too sure. I'm I'm not really even sure if that style of cuisine lends itself to that style of eating in New Zealand. I it, it'd be interesting. Um, yeah. Do do you think price point plays yeah, into that? that? Yeah, well, yeah, well I do. Um you know, there's been a lot of controversy about where Asian food sits and it's considered to be cheap mm. um, which is what I always find interesting because the moment it suddenly stops being cheap and probably the people who are mentioning this will be the first ones to actually, to stop to stop yeah, going exactly yeah. <laughs> um, you know it, 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 so really it, it's got a perception issue and if whether it can break through that I, I don't know um, I I, uh, I live very close to the intersection of um, um, Belmore Road and Dominion Road, which is kind of our spiritual Chinatown, if you want to mm. call it that. And um, so I frequent them, uh, frequent the outlets weekly, and, and, and there's some been some movement in price, but it's still relatively cheap place to dine, and it's always humming every night. So this is where the people are going, and and where they uh, feel comfortable in regards to budget. So whether they move from that into into the higher end or the pointy end of town. I don't know. Um, th- I think there's a market for it, but, uh, but uh, you know, it, 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 we've got some more refined Asian eateries out there, but I don't know if you'd put them into that top end. And I, I just don't know. Maybe it will just take someone with a bold initiative and a bit of bucks behind them to go, right, we're just going to go down that line. Because mm. they do exist overseas. Um, travel up to, to Asia. They are there and they're very popular. But whether that means that we can replicate them here, yeah, I don't know. I think they've captured their market and they've, and they've captured it well. I think they're starting to... Um, make good inroads into that um, middle market um that's customer perception i still think i still think it's gonna um, be around for a little while yeah 
I think it's that um, question also of what is it that people are after? Is it the experience? Is it, you know, premium ingredients? Um, because yeah. that all affects the price point, doesn't it? You know, once you start looking at having paying more overheads, paying more rent, yep. Um, yep. In, in organic ingredients or whatever, then totally the price yeah, on the no, menu is going to change and then whether really, people are really after that experience. Yeah, really good points. And and, and if you look at the, the business models of, of um, the cheaper um, – uh, in a town, it's purely a lot of these are families. A lot of them utilise their sons, daughters, aunties, uncles, grandmothers. If you go into Barilla, which is a well-known place, you'll see you'll see the you know the extended family working mm-hmm. in there, um, and they're supplemented by part-timers predominantly. So the whole business model is different from when you get to the uh, to the pointy end of town because yep. you're going to have to employ. You know, um, skilled, um, dedicated um, chefs and servers, and, and so forth, and that that's fraught with um, risk. You, then you, you, well, hugely, but you you, you know, you, at the moment, there's a great conversation on on immigration and, and availability of um, uh, staff availability and mm. attracting them, and mm-hmm. and you, so you're moving away from from the comfort in, in the in the mass market into into the into a, a completely different area. It just changes the whole game. Mm. And and then this demand from from your customers of, of um, ethical meat, quality ingredients, um, everything from from the serving dishes to the decor, it just changes the whole concept. You know of the market, and and I just tend to think that uh, I just cannot see that transition. But, but you know, could be wrong, Kelly. Yeah, been 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 known to a few times. <laughs> At least you're honest about it. <laughs> um, our locals, and uh, in particular your audience on Lazy Susan, are fiercely proud yep. of Dominion Road. It's our holy grail. Yep. Um, compared to somewhere like Melbourne or Sydney, are we there yet? Well, I think in, I, th- I think in Melbourne, I think it holds its own. Um, from, I haven't been there for a few years now, but the last time I walked through that Chinatown district, I think it holds its own very well. Suddenly, it's a whole different um, that haymarket area, a whole different mm. game. It's just mm. it's just marvellous, and they've, they've got like Korea Town and Thai Town, um, but they've got they've got numbers, and they haven't um, got the, we haven't got the foot yeah, traffic. Yeah, no. yeah. so I, I think um, comparison's not there, um, but for for Auckland size, I I tend to think that whole strip is um, is developing really well. And um, and if you look at it from the from the um, perspective of the city end, going right through to Mount um, to Mount Roskill, um, it, it, all the little areas from from either Noodles up in the north there, um, right down to um, some of the Malay trees by Mount Roskill, uh, you know you could walk that strip and you would find decent dining the whole way down. Mm. Um, so I think it holds its own. I think in that strip there's some there's some decent Malay, there's wonderful regional Chinese um, food, uh, and that's where Auckland strength seems to be. There's lesser options in Vietnamese. Yeah. No Lao, um, a few Thai down that strip. So there's 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 room to grow in that Asian um, sector. But also, you know, being a being a, um, a proud local, it'd be great to see um, you know, more Lebanese and Turkish and. Yeah. Greek food and, and not, not just the Asian options um, to really give it some vibe. You can find the Lazy Susan group on Facebook by searching Lazy Susan. Now speaking of vibe, occasional pop-up restaurants provide an exciting opportunity to experience the unusual from a group of people thinking very much outside the box when it comes to dining experiences. 
Asahi Beer recently teamed up with the Saver Group to present a fusion-style pop-up in the amazing old strip club on K Road, where culprits Jordan McDonald and Kyle Street took on Azabu's Yukio Ozeki. Vinci Jinin, creative director for Saver Group, talked me through the concept. And for us it was just how could we bring together this energy um, and menu and bring it to life into an experience that no one's experienced across the world. And so it was sort of sitting there with my sort of Asahi beer and also just sitting in Azabu and it became to us that let's bring the menu alive so you can hear, taste, feel, see um, and let the chefs be the DJ, the centre of stage for once. Personally for you, where is the Asian food scene at in Auckland? Uh, I think, I mean, being Asian, Samoan Asian and German, just a mixture of everything, it is a staple. So obviously you always, a lot of the hospitality groups go over to Australia and see where they're at and I think at the moment we've got such a talented pool and it's, it is, you, you know, it's cliche to say the whole melting pot of New Zealand but there's so many untouched cuisines but you can move away from the standard recipes that you get in takeaways and whatnot, and then just bring family recipes. The biggest thing, and I find the success in all the restaurants at the moment, is the chefs bringing their family recipes, and just that street food, and just that unheard, and there's obscure produce that they can turn into something amazing for everyone's palate. I think right now, it's just, it's still on the very early horizon, and just this sort of concept like twisting it is what we need to make it, so I think it's that time, and it's just about to ride, as with all other sort of cultured um, cuisines. Is the average customer, do you think, in Auckland ready for food? Like this? Oh, that's, that was the thing we found with the very first year is that when we had the same menu for three months we would have the same customer come a couple of times and it kind of filtered off in the end so what we had to do this year was the concept to change it every month some kind of tweak and then the same customer would come back I think there is a big um, most customers in mainstream New Zealand are still scared if they can't see the menu they can't see it and read it then they're too scared to come into it and then when they come in they're trying things like kina and duck and different things and they actually go I had no idea that's what it would taste like and it's just going out of breaking the stereotype of the three meat you know the veg and the, the sort of meat standard kiwi appetite and saying look come in we know what your palate is and we can apply it with these new ingredients and flavors so that's I guess that's what all the restaurants are trying to do now. It's just like just a few dishes outside, but I think a lot more people need to take that that step and that risk to get into the scene of foodies and catch up. Because a lot of the internationals we have find coming through yeah. just love New Zealand, Auckland, the level. They just can't get over how everyone is focused on Australia, and no one actually gives us the props that we need. And this is a testament to that sort of concept. So it's been quite amazing. And I was a bit worried because I thought I'd be the oldest person in the room, but there's a few oldies here tonight. That's the young, it's literally that's the thing, like there was one moment where it was like on Saturdays and Fridays because we go quite louder in DJs, we say look get up and dance during your meal, you can do whatever you want and it's normally the you know the 65, the 70 year olds that are up because we're all playing, old, it has to be a mixture of new and old school and as soon as we play those old school jams that to them it's K Road, it resonates with them, it was K Road coming here in the 80s to the 70s, like that's what we were trying to relive and it was amazing that we had David Knott here, who, you know, it's his uncle's vision and he's seen it, he was so proud to see that it had gone to another generation, different concept but the original bones exist so it's been an amazing, amazing night tonight with having all of you guys and just no lycra hot pants. Yeah, yeah, not yet, not yet. <laughs> Saturday night. Everything you'll ever need to know about food. And now to another incredible pop-up experience. And we could not be having this conversation about Asian food at the premium end without involving chef Sid Sarawat. Sid and wife and business partner Chand head up three premium Auckland restaurant offerings, two of which, Cassia and Siddharth, deliver the flavours of Sid's Indian heritage. 
The Sarawats presented a once-in-a-lifetime event at Siddharth a few months ago when they invited Manish Merotra, internationally acclaimed Indian chef, to present two special evenings alongside Sid at Siddharth as a part of the Elemental AKL and Eat Drink Love Ponsonby events. The pop-up combined a taste of both highly talented chefs and a question that occurs to me often in the face of so much fusion is whether traditional cuisines are being lost in some of the high-end kitchens. Yeah, I think sometimes they can. Um, we were actually having a chat about this yesterday. Chef Manish was telling me how well, everyone's trying to do fusion in India now. Mm. And I see that happen quite a lot here as well. And I think as long as you, you're staying true to the vision of a dish, and as long as you might use an ingredient from Japan, as long as if you use a, an ingredient from a, the same country and you follow that completely, I think that's fantastic. The problem is when you blend three different cuisines and it's sort of confusing, that's, that sort of kills the point of what we cook for, you know. I think it's okay to um, take kind of inspirations from different concepts of cuisine and do it in your own way. It's interesting though, isn't it? Because there c it can be so very good and it can be so very... Yeah, exactly. So terrible. I mean, if someone can pull it off, fantastic. Yeah. But there's a lot of a lot of people who actually, yeah. it sounds good, but then it's just a train wreck. So, uh, Chef Manish, for you, when you first started to cook, were you doing traditional straight? Actually, I started my career as a Southeast Asian chef. I always work as a in a Thai restaurant. Started my career from Thai restaurant. Indian Accent was the first Indian restaurant which I started. Mm. And um, when I started, I I said I will do my kind of a food, and yeah. my kind of a food is every dish should tell a story there has to if you are mixing two things there has to be reason behind it mm -hmm. if it is a vague reason then it is not successful there has to be a reason there has to be a, um, a story that this should tell and that I believe in and that is how I, I do my cooking mm. and how do you know it must be a little bit like um, being a painter with this food because it's also so beautiful so there must be um, sometimes uh, a tendency to to go too far how do you know when to stop the thing is in in, in every walk of life there is a bottle borderline and uh, borderline it happens like I really don't mix two cuisines of India in one dish. It has to, um, every dish should have a circle and you have to close that circle. You have to start the story and you have to close that circle. That is very, very important. Mm. So I don't mix two Indian cuisine in one dish. So there will be no Kerala mutton in Kashmiri spices. Mm -hmm. It will never happen in my 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 dishes mm. so that is how I keep my rules there yes. and that's the borderline for me so that's where you set your boundaries True. and for you Sid? Oh, for, um, I'm, I completely agree with Manish it's uh, regionalism is so important in what we do and we, we try and carry that at Siddharth and at Cassia as well that if, if we like those ingredients from a different a certain region then we think what else is found in that region and that's where we begin to venture into that cuisine and restraint is quite important as a chef. I think the more we grow as, as people uh, or chefs, um, you don't have to put 10 components on a plate to make it interesting. Mm. Less is more, we all, we've, we've been talking about it for a long time and it's so true that three ingredients, four ingredients can, can speak volumes and more flavor, more technique, more freshness. And that's what food should be about, should make you happy, 
should excite you and should be, make you feel like that's the reason why you go out to try something you can't make at home. I often feel also that um, many chefs, it's a sign of their confidence level if they're able to put just a few things on the plate and leave it there. True. Yeah. True. I, I, that, that's absolutely like uh, sometimes making a simplest dish is 10 times more difficult with using hundreds of ingredients. Mm -hmm. so, like, it's the There's nowhere to hide. Absolutely. Yeah. Does the average person, do you think, are they a little bit stuck in that idea of Asian food, unless it's fine dining, is uh, cheap? It should be cheap? Absolutely. I run a restaurant in New York and London, and when we started there, um, especially in New York, um, it, it was a bit of a dif difficult thing to convince people, but how can I pay $100 for a curry? But it is not a curry restaurant. It's the amount of hard work, amount of research, and amount of uh, um, sweat has gone into creating that menu and creating those dishes in the restaurant mm. is as equal to any other cuisine or um, chef who, who puts that much of effort. So why, um, and we are using one of the best ingredients in our, it's, it's not that we are using only cheap ingredients. So it's the best ingredients we are using. We don't compromise in quality of ingredient. So why can't we charge uh, that? So this was, but, but it is changing. Mm. It is changing. And I'm, I'm sure it will, um, people will understand. Do you still have to take into account the Western palate? No, not anymore. People are very open to trying new things and they want the real thing. So um, I, I, we, cook, we cook just what we feel like cooking and what we, what, where our heart takes us. Um, and uh, spontaneous cooking is so important in today's world and looking after um, the environment and the seasons and you know, the passion of the team is so important as well. We don't, it's, it's so important that everyone cooks what they really enjoy cooking. When you start copying people, as that's when your personality and food is lost, and your love as well. Again, um, there are a lot of misconceptions about Indian cuisine outside India. Mm. And uh, like Indians, they eat very spicy food or very heavy or oily food, which is not exactly true. India is a large country and we have so many, I think we have food for every palate in the world. Only thing is you have to do a research and take out those recipe and and do it in a restaurant. So I cook same spice level what my mother cooks at home. It's it's nothing less, nothing more. Mm -hmm. And I don't think so. I've ever changed anything in New York or London for uh, for the people. Cuisine bites with Kelly Brett. And so we've almost come full circle to Tony Tan, much loved Aussie food writer, who asked me the question, "Where is your flower drum?" Tony is passionate about authenticity. I asked him if he's worried about losing authenticity as chefs strive to combine elements of different cuisines on the plate. When you look at a, a very traditional culture and traditional regional dishes and you look at it from a purist way of looking at those recipes, do you worry that at the moment with our one-size-fits-all culture that we will end up losing those you know, really traditional... No, I don't really quite worry as much as I should be worrying about. But there again, you know, here I am, you know, living in Australia, you know, coming from a family that's, that's, that's in Malaysia. So which means that, you know, I virtually have been brought up in eating Chinese, Malayan, Indian food already. And then I go 
and live in Australia. I, you know, I've been living in Australia for 30 years now. And then, you know, I go and eat, eat whatever ethnic food there is. What, what's ethnicity nowadays anyway? Because, you know, all of us are part of the melting pot. The melting pot is becoming such a melting pot. Will we lose that? And does it matter? To some extent, yes, and to some extent, it doesn't. It all depends on whether if the cook is able to understand the culture behind the the dish or the, the food. You know, for instance, you know, I'm thinking about masu, you know, as soon as I've said that, you know, and that they are actually using things that are, that are from New Zealand and, you know, and reinterpreting in that kind of Japanese context. And that I like very much to sort of see um, Nick, Nick, yes, Nick Watt. You know, he's it's it's fascinating to sort of see that you know here is a Kiwi boy cooking Japanese food. You know, but it is also you know going to places like um, Pasture, you know, whereby he's English, and yet at the same time you know he is using a lot of the things that are grown and found in New Zealand. And that in itself is really very exciting to see. But then there again, you know, we also have somebody like um, uh, Chef Anthony Louis from Flower Drum Restaurant. He makes the most beautiful, beautiful dim sum, you know, that you could find possibly under the sun. You know, you virtually have got to pay $20 for one, you know, dim sum item. You know, and that to me is it's, it's quintessentially Chinese. It is bringing together the best ingredients you could possibly find under the sun. It is also bringing together seasonal ingredients that you can find under the sun. And turning it on its head because it is no longer uh, a $10 plate of 20 dim sums, but it's for one, you know, and that to me is also equally as important. Does that make sense to you? Yes. Yeah. Well, I'm not sure where we got with all of that. A few standouts. Yes, there seems to be a perception of low value when it comes to Asian food. New Zealand does not perhaps have the foot traffic to be able to push menu price point to where it needs to be for more high-end Asian dining experiences. Certain ingredients can be hard to come by, but what we do have available to us here is outstanding. And in the end, New Zealand is becoming more diverse and so is our food. Our Asian population doubled between 2001 and 2013. And when we talk about our food, we should be talking about a greater experience, reflective of people, culture and food. Head over to cuisine.co.nz to read an article written about that very thing by Samuel Scott. And please do send me your thoughts, reflections, ideas. I'd love to hear from you at editorial at cuisine.co.nz or find us on social at Cuisine Magazine. Don't forget... A subscription to Cuisine Magazine makes a gorgeous gift for the foodie in your life. And I'll meet you back here for another episode of Cuisine Bites soon. Mm. How is it? Oh, that's good. Not bad, huh? Oh, that is good. This is the perfect it's, time for this drink. You know what? It's always negroni time. Mm. I'm going to mm. have another sip mm. with you. Okay, now you don't need permission to pick your glass up now. It's all right. You well, can just you. do it whenever you, you want to. You see how I waited? I was... <laughs> I was following my, my mother's manners here and the advice, yeah. She did teach you some manners. Well, thank you. Thank you.